Welcome to Conversations at Mount Vernon's Washington Library. The Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon serves as the premier resource for all who are interested in the study of George Washington and the revolutionary and founding eras. Every year, the library hosts numerous scholars who share our dedication to generate and disseminate new knowledge about all things Washington. The library's founding director, Dr. Douglas Bradburn, has the opportunity to sit down with these scholars to explore their research, and we are so excited to share those conversations with you. Today's guest is Nick Bunker. Mr. Bunker was educated at King's College, Cambridge, and later Columbia University. He is a former journalist from the Liverpool Echo and Financial Times. His first historical book, Making Haste from Babylon, detailed the history of the Mayflower Pilgrims. Today, he will discuss his latest work, An Empire on Edge, How Britain Came to Fight America, which won the 2015 George Washington Book Prize. During the discussion, you'll hear about the decline of colonial holdings in North America from the British perspective, British imperial practices that lessened their hold on American colonies, and why the British took actions that eventually led to the Boston Tea Party. And now, Mr. Bunker and Dr. Bradburn. All right, well, welcome back. This is Doug Bradburn. I'm the founding director of the Fred W. Smith National Library here at Mount Vernon. Uh, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Nick Bunker. Nick is the author of many books of history and many other things. And uh, we're going to talk about his book, An Empire on the Edge, today, how Britain came to fight America. Welcome, Nick. Well, thank you. And uh, it's great to be here again. Uh, so, you are a, one of these great historians who started your careers as a professional journalist. And uh, as I often think, that journalists seem to be able to write to a deadline, whereas uh, us who are trained as academic historians struggle and struggle along. How did you learn how to write uh, quickly and well? Well, in my case, uh, my first job as a journalist was on an evening newspaper in, in England, uh, in Liverpool, uh, the Liverpool Echo. Now, mm. if you're on an evening newspaper, then of course you have to write to very tight deadlines because if the newspaper is going to come out at lunchtime or in the afternoon, uh, then you have to get your work done by, by sometimes 9, 10 a.m. in the morning. So you have to start very early and then write rapidly. So mm. I suppose that was when I learned how to write on deadline. And then again, later on at the Financial Times too, uh, where we had pretty tight deadlines. Um, I'm not as good as I used to be in terms of writing briefly and, and as quickly as I once was in my youth. Well, one of the things uh, that you are great at is uh, brilliant prose. I think of all the history books I've read uh, recently, yours is the kind of thing you can't put down. You tell a story uh, as well as anyone. Where did that come from? Practice? Long study? Uh, is it innate? What do you think? Well, I think it partly comes from studying excellent models. Uh, I mean, I read a lot of, of fiction, classic fiction, yeah. uh, and the novelists I tend to read would, would be the ones I'd always go back to, Dickens, mm. particularly also Balzac I'm very keen on. Really? Uh, yeah, very. Uh, one of my favorite novelists. Uh, Stendhal as well, the French. The French. Mm -hmm. um, and Joseph Conrad is another great influence on my prose style. But the thing about prose is you just have to work at it over and over and over again. Yeah. I, sometimes these chapters can be rewritten maybe four or five, six times before I feel I've got them right. Mm. And I'll be making corrections and alterations right up until the last moment when the publisher is, is desperate to have the final book so that it can meet its publication deadline. Uh, and you know, I, really there is nothing else to say except that. It, the, I suppose there is just one thing more I could add though, which is um, to do with, with visual, uh, the way I visualize things mm. in books. Um, I mean, I'm very, very keen on indeed in, in having what a film director would call a mise-en-scene. I'm very mm -hmm. keen actually in, in creating a scene and putting the characters into the scene almost as though I was creating like a toy theatre. Yeah. And so I try to make the opening of each chapter as visual as possible. Well, that's certainly true in, in this book. Before we get into some great examples of that, uh, let's talk a little bit more about your career before you started writing history books. Uh, you were, you said you were with the Financial Times. My understanding is you were in Asia or you were a around the world, a global correspondent? And, uh, no, no, yeah. I, did, I, did, I did spend some time in Asia for the FT, but only quite briefly. Yeah. Um, but I, I've done a lot of traveling in various ways over the years, partly as a journalist. Uh, I spent quite a bit of time in, in, in Eastern Europe and in, in the former Soviet Union just after the war mm -hmm. came down mm -hmm. in the early 90s. Okay. Uh, partly that was also just going on holidays. My wife and I used to go on trips to these places yeah. uh, in the summer. Uh, so I've done, done various, and also to India. I've made a number of trips to India. So. Mm. Um, Really, those places where I've been. 
Uh, when I was at the FT, I was almost entirely based in the UK, mm. and I was really covering both financial affairs, but also I had a very useful period as a, as a parliamentary reporter mm. in England, and that was very useful indeed from the point of view of being a writer writing about history of history of politics in the 18th century. Yeah, well, I would I would say I mean, that's the, the perfect background for the man who wrote this great book, An Empire <laughs> on the Edge, which is a global perspective, yeah. but it also, of course, is a great uh, political perspective uh, and financial one. So. Uh, it seems like all your all your talents were coming together in this particular story. Well, I hope so. I but you know really, I, what got me started on on writing about American history or rather Anglo-American history was the fact that uh, after I left Cambridge, where I was an undergraduate in the UK, I spent a couple of years at Columbia as mm -hmm. a graduate student in the early eighties. You see, initially I was intending to have an academic career, okay. and the reason I didn't go ahead with that was simply because in the early mid eighties, when I was coming back from America. The economic environment in the UK was really very adverse, mm. and universities were under a huge amount of pressure, and the prospect of getting an academic post in those days was mm. very remote. Mm. Mm. So that was really why I, um, okay. I, I quit academia and went and became a journalist. I did, didn't have much option. Mm. Um, but the time I'd spent at Columbia was exceptionally fruitful because that was when New York was in a particularly interesting phase, the early 80s, when it was... You know, not not the place it is now. Still a dangerous summer. place to be. Uh, in those days, yes, certainly was, yes. Mm -hmm. And in the Upper West Side, even. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah, but hard to imagine now uh, that all the successes, <laughs> yeah. right? There. Yeah. Although perhaps it's heading back that direction. That seems to be some of the rumors from people who live in New York. But I won't, I won't adjudge any of that right now. I think it's unlikely we'd ever get back to what it was in 81, 82, 83. Yeah. So the first book you wrote on early American history, Making Haste from Babylon, about the Mayflower. Uh, what attracted you to that story? Well, that was really a question of feasibility. You see, I wanted to, to write about um, the period of, of, of colonization, the period of, of uh, British, the first English exploration of, of North America. Mm. And uh, my feeling was that it, was, it, was, it would be a feasible project because I happened to be living, I lived actually in, in the Midlands or rather north of England, uh, the area from which many of the early um, settlers in New England came. Mm. And I believe it would be possible to, to use material in the, in the unpublished material in, in archival collections there to illuminate what occurred in the early days of the Plymouth Colony. Mm. And, that, and that's right. Feasibility comes into this. I mean, the fact of the matter is there are certain historical projects that are feasible within a reasonable time scale mm. because of the, the amount, the quality of, of the material that's available, and there are some that just aren't. Yeah. Uh, and so this book, and, and we'll talk about your next book as well, which is... Uh, which is a teaser, it's going to be on Benjamin Franklin. Uh, why, why are you so interested in early American history? What are the questions that allows you to explore? Or, or is this British imperial history as you see it? I wouldn't really say it's British imperial history. I mean, one of the things I'm very interested in is something else actually, which is the origins of the British Industrial Revolution. Mm. The Industrial Revolution is a subject that I've uh, been fascinated by for, for a long time. Mm. Um, and my wife would tell you that I like nothing better than to, to go about the countryside in England looking for early industrial sites. Mm. Um, and I tend to see the, 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 the 18th century, the, the interactions between Britain and America in the 18th century is very much a part of the, the wider origins of, of the industrialization of the West. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that interests me about Franklin, of course, is that he was so much a part of that. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things I'll be exploring in, in the new book is, is the early period of his life and showing how Franklin's family, uh, uh, his, his friends, the people he was exposed to on his first trip to London in the early 1720s, and all of these people were also part of the, of the process of, of, the, of the origins of, of the industrial economy. Um, uh, that's the kind of thing that attracts me to him, and also what attracts me to Franklin is simply the fact that he's such a kind of fascinating, complex character. Mm. And I'm feel, I, mean, I feel, frankly, that American historians tend to be a little bit too sentimental and a little bit too um, deferential about He's beloved, that's for certain. Yeah. Well, he should be beloved, but, but even if you love somebody, you've got to acknowledge they've got some faults and flaws. Mm. And also, I think there's a tendency to kind of to, to, to overlook his own assessment of himself. Mm. I mean, Franklin wouldn't have seen himself, for example, as a great author. He didn't. Mm. I think he was, but he didn't really see himself as a great author. Yeah. He, what he really wanted to be was a scientist. Mm. Uh, that's why my book is called subtitled The Birth of Ingenuity. He wanted to be what he called an ingenious person, yeah. which basically meant science, especially the practical application of science. And he was a very good, very fine writer, but he didn't really see that as being, as being the be-all and end-all of existence. Yeah. Nor politics, really. I mean, he kind of got dragged into politics, mm. uh, and he stuck with it 
but he always wanted to really get back to experimentation and also the application of experimentation in industry. Yeah. Well, in uh, colonial North America, it's such a small society for talented men that anyone is, with any talent is going to be sucked into politics because that is mm -hmm. uh, yeah. uh, that was that was kind of the f the, f the thing going. Uh, uh, you know that you would your talents would be necessary for. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it wasn't the kind of country where you could indulge a career in writing or science without that uh, aspect. I would think. Uh, so, an Empire on the Edge. Winner of the George Washington Book Prize last year, and in a very competitive year, I think. And, and for my money, is someone who's worked on and trained graduate students in uh, early American history uh, and written on the coming of the American Revolution. It's certainly one of the best books written on the coming of the American Revolution in the last generation, I think. Good, right. You didn't mention it was a finalist for a Pulitzer Prize. You didn't mention <laughs> Pulitzer Prize, come on, how much money do you get for a Pulitzer Prize compared to the George Washington Book Prize? We're at Mount Vernon right that's now. That's true, that's very true. Pulitzer, that's very true. come very on. True. He was an old newspaper man, though, so you yeah, That's right, you're that's right. And, and of course it's administered by Columbia, and I was a uh, Columbia alumnus. So, so who won the Pulitzer last year? History, it was mm. it was a lady from, the, uh, it was a book about the Mandan Indians, Elizabeth Fenn. Of course, yes, of course, yeah. Elizabeth, yes. Yeah. Uh, it's a good book as well. Um, well, finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, winner of the George Washington Book Prize. Uh, here, here it is. Now, uh, well, we'll start. Why don't we start with that um, th that beautiful um, picture that you paint, essentially, of uh, uh, which is both a story and a metaphor for the the the, the challenge of the British in North America. There's a fort on uh, the banks of the Mississippi River. Yeah. Uh, Fort Cavendish. Uh, yeah, the official British name was Fort Cavendish, but it was actually usually known by the French name Fort Chart mm -hmm. or Fort Charters, which is how the British pronounced it. Yes, and tell that, paint that picture for the for the listening audience. Then. Well, I came across this uh, a reference to Fort Charters when I was reading John Shy's book Towards Lexington. Now, that's a really excellent mm -hmm. book, published I think what about thirty years ago now, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. about the the British Army and the origins of the American Revolutionary War. And I came across this reference to this fort. Uh, by the side of the Mississippi, which the British had taken over from the French in 1764 or 5. Mm. And the fort was built right next to the river. And of course, as everybody knows who knows the Mississippi, the river has an awkward habit of changing course mm. and mm. cutting into the, uh, the eastern bank. And the fort essentially was gradually falling down. And when I read this, I thought this makes a wonderful kind of metaphor for the, the, mm. the slow disintegration yeah. of the British Empire. Yeah. And so I, I, I did my best to, uh, to find out what I could about Fort Charters. Unfortunately, I was never actually going to visit the fort myself, but there is a considerable amount of, of, of manuscript material in the United States uh, and in the UK to describe the fort and what happened to it and the, the, um. the appalling experiences of the British soldiers who were sent out to this place in the 1760s. Of course, because it was right next to the Mississippi, I mean, it was what? It was... It was it was a it was the very furthest Western outpost of the British Empire, yeah. and, and it felt like that to the soldiers concerned. So that was, but it was also something else I was doing there, which was uh, if if you were to read the uh, the first pages page or two of the book carefully, and and compare them to the opening of Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, you would find that actually I tried to, if you like, allude to or echo uh, the opening of yeah. Gibbon's Decline and Fall. Uh, in, in kind of the way I wrote the in which in the in the way kind of the way I shaped the prose the first yeah. two pages. Well, that's fascinating. I, I didn't uh, catch. I didn't no. smoke that reference. No, you probably didn't. No. But I would say that you. Um, well, I've got Gibbon right up right up there. I have one of those editions of Gibbon. Yeah. But uh, uh, you're not very kind to Gibbon at all uh, in in the book. Uh, well, I wouldn't just say that. I mean, I think the problem <laughs> was he was a great historian. Um, I mean, he was a, he, the reason he comes into the book is, is partly because I think the. The, the decline of all the empire. The decline of all the empire is, is not actually a, a kind of a, a, an attempt by Gibbon to describe in a, in a, uh, a contemporary a crisis. No, it isn't. Yeah. No, uh, but of course he was. He was well, a I think that some people. authors have have I suggested know, I, I, that. I don't think that's true. But you don't have any time for that at all. No, I don't think that's yeah. true. No, um, but he was a close friend of Lord North, the Prime yes. Minister. Mm -hmm. um, he was himself a member of Parliament, actually. Well, he never uttered a word in, in, in the House of Commons, but then many MPs, many members of Parliament never did utter mm. a word. Mm. Um, he, he played a little bit of a role, of course, in the, in the Revolutionary War himself because he was commissioned by the British government to write the Memoir Justificatif, which was a French mm. tract published in 1778 or 1779, in which, in which um, Gibbon used his, his verbal skills to, 
uh, defend uh, what the British had done, British policy, mm. um, to a European audience. He tried to show that every single step the British had taken along the way was fully justified by the law of nations, by the laws of diplomacy. Mm -hmm. So he did play a bit of a role. But really the other reason he, he gets alluded to in the book is because I think the, the, the kind of attitudes and values that are on show and on yeah. display in the decline and fall are very typically those of the statesmen of the period. And I just and I, and I think he's, he's a useful kind of point of reference in trying to yeah. define their attitude towards the world. There's a certain complacency at the center about uh, yeah. British liberty, British yeah. constitutionalism, Britain yeah. as the seat of progress that, that you, you're suggesting a Gibbon is using as a foil to the Roman uh, Empire. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, essentially, Gibbon, not just Gibbon, but, uh, but other Britons at the time in yeah. the 1770s, believed that, of course, Britain had gone beyond, surpassed, and outdone the, the, mm. the Roman Empire, mm. and that they had done so because, of course, they had what the Romans didn't have, which was liberty. Mm. I mean, mm. the Romans had liberty for a few, but, but slavery for a great many. Mm. Um, now, another character I refer to in the book in, in the sort of same kind of way is Robert Adam, the architect. Yes, because yeah. Robert Adam was the kind of house architect and house designer of the of the British um, the elite at the yeah. time, yeah. And I think the kind of attitudes again that are on display in Adam's architecture, yeah. the architecture that was that, that was essentially was, was commissioned by by Lord North and his his friends, uh, that itself I think is quite revealing of the British outlook. Sort of improved sort of. Roman. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Absolutely <laughs> improved yeah. Roman, greatly improved Roman. Yes. Yeah, well that and that well that's it's really well done in in that uh, in that way you bring it together. In an essence, uh, this book I is an effort to capture um, the British point of view of the collapse. Yeah, it is, but I, but I also try to get inside the American point of view too. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, one of the chapters that gave me most difficulty, but which I'm quite pleased with, is the chapter about Boston, mm -hmm. where I describe mm -hmm. the way Boston would have appeared. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And what I do is I imagine what would have, what, how it would have looked to a Britain landing on the Long Wharf in right. Boston Harbour yeah. in the early 1770s and what he would have made of the place. Mm. But mm. of course, in the process of doing that, I'm also describing it for Americans too. Mm. And I do kind of slightly pride myself also on, on the fact that although I'm British, I do immerse myself pretty thoroughly in American material. Mm -hmm. And I like to go back to source material that is sort of well known to American historians, but maybe has been uh, slightly less looked at in the, in the last 20 years than maybe it should have been. Yeah, there's a tendency for Americanists to assume they know yeah. famous well, I think famous the, debates. Yeah, I think the great example of that is is the um, Boston Committee of Correspondence papers, which yeah. are in the New York Public Library now. Yeah. There was a very, very good book about these about the Boston Committee Committee of Correspondence written about 30, 40 years ago. Um, I can't exactly now remember the name of the author, um, uh, but those papers are really very, very useful indeed, uh, because not only do you have the the minutes of the Boston Committee of Correspondence of Samuel Adams yeah. and Joseph Warren and the colleagues, but also you have all the letters that that they sent out to their various um, correspondents in, in the towns of the right, England. Right. And, and the responses as well. Exactly, yeah, because yeah, you use some of the provincial. That's right. Yeah. And, and I found, and that's as I say in the, Boston, in the New York Public Library, um, right. and I found that extraordinarily useful. And I, I like to sort of, there was one particular figure I wanted to concentrate on, was, was Elbridge Gerrish, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. who's an interesting character anyway, because of course, you know, he's the man associated with gerrymandering and all that. And, you know, yes, he was, he was you know, yeah. black president. He didn't sign uh, the constitution. And, he's, he's, and, and he's I wanted to sort of get in yeah. inside his head because I felt that that in in seventeen seventy four, quite a bit of correspondence from him survives in seventeen seventy four, and you can really get a picture uh, in his letters for how uh, his thinking was developing towards the British in yeah. seventeen seventy four. And the point I was making there really was that my view is that it isn't true, as some historians have argued, that Americans were always reluctant revolutionaries. So right. I, mean, I think there were some. Including Gary and including one or two other people like Nathaniel Green, uh, certainly the Lees, of course, who really were 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 <laughs> really were yeah. eager to, to yeah. get the revolution started well, and well, who wanted wanted were almost provoking it. Well, and in general, you make a point about uh, attitudes in New England, in particular, although you, you do mention them other places, attitudes that were formed in the decade before seventy two that um, were, were reinforced in the moments of crisis, not sort yeah. of formed at that moment. And that's a, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, angle to take because I do think there is a strain of the literature on the coming of the American Revolution uh, that implies sort of that uh, not only were they reluctant uh, to such a huge extent, but essentially that, it, that there didn't need to be a revolution. I mean, certainly we don't want to th think of any history as inevitable, but. You don't assume that uh, 
that if there hadn't been a break, that things would have just gone on swimmingly. I mean, no, I you're painting a, a, a rising right. dissolution. If, if, if there had not been, um, if, if the, the tea had not been shipped to yeah. Boston for developing time, right. uh, then yeah, you wouldn't have had the tea party, you wouldn't have had the coercive yeah, acts. The trigger. Uh, yeah, yeah, it would have been the trigger. But there were other triggers that would have occurred. I mean, there would have been a yeah. big bust up at some stage over yeah. the frontier. There's no question about that. Yeah. Because the British did not wish to see any kind of expansion beyond the line of 1763. Yeah. The Quebec Act that was passed in 1774 would have been passed, even if there had been none of the other coercive acts. Mm -hmm. The Quebec Act definitely would have been passed because the British did need yeah. to have a new system of government for their French-Canadian subjects, yeah. and they did want to stop American expansion. So there would have been a bust up at some stage yeah. over the frontier. I think there are other things. I mean, the situation in New Hampshire, in the New Hampshire land grants in Vermont. Mm -hmm. Now, that mm -hmm. was building up too, where clearly Ethan Allen was already staging his own minor revolution. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. just how serious that would have been, I don't know, frankly. Yeah. Um, but, but essentially, you're describing a system as a, if it even a, a British empire that wasn't functioning. I mean, no, exactly. I mean, the system essentially, was it was falling it apart. Was, and and, and, yeah. and the, 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 the tensions between the centre, between the metropolis and the periphery were becoming more intense. Yeah and less easy to manage. Now, exactly when the flashpoint would have been, hard to say. Uh, mm -hmm. Might mm -hmm. have been 1783 or 84 or yeah. 1773, but it would have come. Yeah, so so that's wonderful. So let's talk a little bit about how you how you think about how the empire worked or didn't work or how it functioned. In the book, you describe sort of the two empires, one a political and one a financial yes, one. Yes, yes. Uh, talk a little bit about the financial empire the, or the British. In some cases, you, you describe it as sort of like a giant hedge fund. Yes, I mean, in the sense that the... the, the if you no, the commercial empire. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if, if you stand back from it, I mean, obviously in the 1760s and 1770s, various, British political economy was actually pretty complicated. Now, the biggest single activity of the British, like everybody else at that time, was still, was still agriculture. Mm -hmm. um, but British agriculture really wasn't going anywhere. I mean, or at least this is certainly my view of it, that mm -hmm. 1760s, 1770s, um, the British were finding that the, the profitability of, of agriculture was declining. Mm. Um, they weren't uh, improving their agricultural productivity as fast as they had been earlier in the century. And what they were tending to do was they were tending their force to divert more and more of their attention into financial speculation of one kind or another, mm. uh, whether in commercial metropolitan real estate mm -hmm. um, or whether in, in stocks, bonds, etc., mm -hmm. speculating commodities. Mm -hmm. um, in addition to that, of course, the, the part of the of the system that was most buoyant, that was doing, was growing most rapidly, was the, the trade in, in tropical or, or yeah. subtropical soft commodities, whether yes. it be tobacco yeah. or rice or whatever. Um, and and in order for the British, you know, to continue to grow their prosperity, in order for the aristocracy to continue to have the kind of lifestyle they wanted to have, in order for the landed gentry to have the lifestyle they wanted to have, they had to go on growing this kind of rather speculative. Um, Economy based on the sort of things I've just been referring yeah. to. Yeah. Um, so an economy yeah, that's going to be risky and, and uh, yeah, it was risky and, and subject to booms and busts. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And that was already a phenomenon in the 1760s, 1770s. And, and how did debt factor into all this? This is well, what they're using to speculate. There was a great deal of it. I mean, there was a huge expansion after the after what we call the Seven Years' War and what you call mm -hmm. the French and Indian War. Mm -hmm. There was a huge expansion in the banking business of London. Uh, many new banks were created. Um, uh, a huge expansion in the availability of credit, much of it completely unregulated, but most of it completely unregulated. Mm -hmm. And the banking crisis of 1772 was kind of an accident waiting to happen. And I, the problem with, with it for the British government was that they, that they really had no way of conceptualizing what was going on. Um, all they could do is just respond with to, to, to this, this particular crisis, and mm -hmm. indeed the crisis in the East India Company, with yeah. by sort of patching together ad hoc solutions. Uh, one of which ended up being the, the sending of the key to Boston in 1773. Yeah, so partly we have then a, a complacency of perspective represented yeah. by the Gibbonites of the world, kind of the, the elite who thinks the yeah. British are perfect yeah. in all these different ways. Uh, one has to do with the kind of the risky character of the financial system itself that will create crises of, of economy that need to be dealt with, a sort of a stagnant agricultural yeah. sector where there's opportunity for some few but not for the many. Um, but then a political system that's completely inadequate to respond to crisis, right? I mean, that's yeah, yeah, that's, that's essentially right. Yeah. I mean, the, the political si system was actually quite stable in a way. Mm. Uh, I mean, in fact, this is the great irony that, that, that Lord North, um, although he was a man who lost America, he was in many ways an extraordinarily successful politician in other respects. Yeah. The fact that he actually managed to remain prime minister for, for more than ten years, mm. 
which is quite a remarkable achievement by the standards of the era. Um, but I think what was wrong with the political system was, was not so much the fact that it was undemocratic, it really was, but, it, but it, it, it didn't really have the administrative depth either. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's a big, interesting phenomenon. There was a big administrative revolution in Britain in the middle of the 19th century when we created a kind of modern civil service and so on. Yeah. And that just wasn't there in the, in the 18th century. Uh, yes, yeah. There wasn't yeah. the kind of depth of administrative talent and competence that was necessary for dealing with the issues that were coming up. Yeah, you have that, uh, I mean, that the, the fact of the matter is the British can, in North America, can can claim authority, but no, they have no way to enforce it. They have, no. you know, 17 people in the state of, or the colony of Virginia yeah. who are yeah. royal officials, and some of those are most, most likely Creoles anyway. Well, see, so. the British were very good at certain yeah. things. I mean, the, the British were very good at diplomacy. Uh, their, their foreign service was good. Their intelligence gathering service mm. during wartime was mm. extremely good. I mm -hmm. mean, if you ever read that book by Stacey Schiff, um, Cliff, uh, yeah. Great Improvisation, mm -hmm. a great book by Stacey Schiff, yeah. uh, Benjamin Franklin, and yeah. she describes the extent to which, of course, the, the British Secret Service, the British intelligence, were able to penetrate pretty well everywhere they wanted to penetrate. The British were very good at that. But <laughs> there was a degree of, 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 of ineptitude and, 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 and incompetence yeah. about a lot of kind of basic administrative techniques um, and and also in peacetime their intelligence was much less adequate so in America mm -hmm. once the war began the British really did start to make big progress in terms of setting up networks of spies etc before the war began mm -hmm. and they didn't and they also tended to be hidebound by bureaucratic rules yeah so for example if the governor of a given colony whether Massachusetts or New Jersey or wherever sent a dispatch the dispatch would be read and, and noted and listened to in London and responded to but if the dispatch or the letter describing the conditions in the colony came from someone who was an unofficial source who wasn't part of the hierarchy, then probably would just get ignored. Mm, yeah. uh, that isn't really very appropriate. Yeah, well, and, and I guess there is the political judgment to decide who to listen to when it comes yeah. to what is the state of the mind of the colony. Well, actually, you see, the British What's did, wrong yeah, with America? Yeah. Well, the British did receive, I mean, Lord Dartmouth, the British colonial secretary, did yeah. receive interesting letters from people who knew what they were talking about. And these mm. letters there in his private papers in in Stafford in England, mm. letters from men who travelled in the colonies yeah. and wrote to Dartmouth saying, look, there's going to be a revolution here or there. You know, authority's breaking down. It's only a matter of time. You've got to come up with a plan. But they just won't listen to it. Yeah. So Lord Dartmouth and Lord North are the two of the pivotal figures that you yes. focus at yes, on. Yes, that's right. Um, Lord North is a master manoeuvrer in politics. What about Dartmouth? We know less about him. Well, I, Dartmouth has been a, a neglected figure, really, because, of course, he, he faded away out of the scene after the Battle of Bunker Hill, basically, mm -hmm. uh, because, and he had, he, he's widely perceived as having been a failure as colonial secretary, because, of course, he did preside over the debacle of, of um, the response to the Tea Party, mm -hmm. um, and, as I say, he faded away and simply faded out of office after Bunker Hill, because he was so horrified by the loss of life yeah. and what had occurred. But he lived till 1801. He it's did. Like he what interested yeah. me about Dartmouth was now he, he got the job based as colonial secretary because he was the stepbrother of Lord North and mm. he was regarded as a reliable safe pair of hands who, who wouldn't rock the boat wouldn't cause trouble and, and would, 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 would basically do what he was told but what interested me about him was that he was also a very very religious man he was profoundly religious and, and he left behind a lot of private correspondence in, as part of the family papers which give you enable you to come up with a very clear idea of what was going on inside the head of Lord Dartmouth and of course, what interests me here was the fact that the man who was, the terrible irony was that the man who was the most pious, the most religious, the most peace-loving Christian of all the British uh, ministers uh, was precisely the man, of course, who had to send the dispatch on January the 27th, 1775 to General Gage in Boston, effectively telling him to march up the road to Lexington. Mm. Uh, and that's a kind of very painful irony. And mm. that was something I wanted to explore in terms of the kind of the divided consciousness of Lord Dartmouth. Mm. And that's uh, fascinating. Well, let's take a step back because the book is a rich narrative of that period from about, I guess, what, 1772 until, yeah, until Lexington. Yeah, it effectively starts in 71, early 72, and then it terminates, yeah. uh, at, it terminates when the British send the orders to, to, to General Gage, which leads him to go to Lexington. I don't yeah. actually deal with the battle itself. Uh, what we were talking about earlier, kind of how financial challenges can lead to political crises and the inability to deal with them, is epitomized by the East India Company and, and what happens, I think, uh, leading up to the Tea Act and other things. Talk a little bit about the East India Company, how it worked 
and then how the crisis emerged in North America. Well, the East India Company, of course, is, is the historian's dream because the, the archives of the East India Company, which are preserved in the British Library in London, are absolutely superb. They're fantastic. Mm. Um, and they haven't been studied as much as you might think. Mm. Uh, there are really only two or three historians in the UK who really do serious work on the East India Company. Mm. But what I did was I essentially wanted to trace from beginning to end how was it that the East India Company acquired all this bloody tea that was, this, was in the warehouse, you know, yeah. 17 million yeah. pounds it's worth of, of by way of tea. Yeah. See, how did they come to have all this stuff? Yeah. Why were they in such terrible financial trouble in 1772 to 73? And what was the, the process of decision making inside the company that led them together with Lord North to come up with this, this, this scheme to ship it all off to, to the colonies yeah. and end up getting it stuffed in the harbour on December 16th? Yeah. Um, so that was what I was doing. Um, and fortunately, uh, not only are the, are the archives of the East India Company superb, but there was always an excellent, there was also an excellent official inquiry by the British uh, Parliament into the company in 1773, which, mm. uh, which, which left behind a mass of, of really excellent evidence. Mm. Uh, mm. And so you can reconstruct exactly what went on. Yeah. And yeah. essentially what had happened was the East India Company had fallen in the late 1760s under the control of, of a group of men uh, particularly a chap called Sir George Colebrook, who was the chairman, a group of men who were, you know, who, who really were, you know, very, very audacious um, risk takers. Mm. And they, they ran the company into the ground. And uh, they had to keep pursuing ever more aggressive and risky policies simply in order to protect the investment they'd already made. And essentially that was what happened. Um, I mean, they weren't, I think, in India itself, I mean, the company's record was pretty dreadful. Yeah, in terms right. of the, the administrative mm. record and, and the appalling consequences of their misgovernment in Bengal, in particular in relation to the Bengal famine. Mm -hmm. um, in London, it was more a kind of almost comical case. Of, mm. It was a bit like The Big Short, to be frank. If, if you've yeah. seen the film yeah. The Big Short, it's yeah. not unlike yeah. what was going on inside yeah. the East India Company. And everybody who's anybody is invested in the East India Company. Uh, no, British that's parts. not true. That's yeah. the funny part. They weren't, yeah. actually. Strangely enough, the East yeah. India Company shareholder base was actually quite curious. Mm. About 30% of the stock of the East India Company was actually held by foreigners, particularly mm. the Dutch. For example, um, there, there, were, there, was a, there were Dutch charitable you institutions. You can always blame the Dutch if we look deep enough. There were Dutch charitable institutions yeah. who held stock in the East India Company. Interesting. And a lot of the biggest dealings in the East India Company's shares were actually done through um, stockbroking firms based in Amsterdam. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and particularly the Jewish firms, because a lot of the, there, there were Anglo-Dutch there there Anglo Jewish um, broking firms based on in, in both London and Amsterdam. And they tended to dominate the, mm. the dealings in East India Company stock. Mm. Mm. Uh, interestingly enough, they didn't actually suffer too severely by way of losses. Mm. Uh, it, mm -hmm. it, it's hard to figure out exactly what was going on, but they appeared to be able to get out while the game was reasonably good. Right. So about 30% of the stock of the East India Company was owned by foreigners. Mm. In the UK, a lot of it, in the United Kingdom, a lot of it was actually owned by, for example, women. Mm. Uh, it, it, I think about 10 or 15% of the stock was in the hands of women. It was because the East India Company paid a lot of dividend, high dividend. It was a high yielding stock and it was regarded as being ideal for financing pensions and annuities mm. for widows and spinsters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Another big chunk of the shares were held by, by men who had been in India themselves, people like Clive of India, mm -hmm. for example, uh, who had been in India themselves who had worked for the company and they had big holdings. And then there were merchants, banks and so on. The actual aristocracy, the titled aristocracy, tended not to hold much of the company mm. at all. Uh, in fact, they tended to keep their distance from it. Um, and there was only one member of the British cabinet, Lord Sandwich, who had any serious interest in the East India Company. Okay, so what came, where did their clout come from then? In the well, their clout really came from, the, now there were, there were some East India They companies. paid a massive amount of money to well, the British. Well, there was a big, big power of patronage. Yeah. You see, what right. was very valuable was um, jobs with the East India Company. Right. Um, I mean, right. they could dispense salaries because they had all sorts of jobs at the disposal in the Indian civil service or in the factory in, in China and so on. Um, but also the other thing really, the, the most important thing was simply the sheer size of it in, in commercial terms. Mm. You know, it created a lot of employment, it created a lot of wealth, and also it borrowed a lot of money. And one of the problems in 1772-3 was that the East India Company was so heavily in debt to the Bank of England. Mm. So that a collapse of the East India Company would actually be a threat to the financial solvency of the system as a whole. There you go. Right. Too big to fail. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah no, that's absolutely right. Yes, exactly. So the scheme to get rid of this glut of tea, how did that, how, where did the tea come from and how come there was so much of it? And well, it came from China, obviously. I mean, that was the only thing you get tea in those days. There was no tea yeah. in India at this stage. Um, yeah. 
Well, what the East India Company had done uh, since about the 1730s was that they had created, in conjunction with Chinese merchants in, in, in uh, Canton, they had created um, uh, a system of, of, of credit fueled expansion in the production of tea in China, which, mm-hmm. you know, which, was, which, was, which was very good at producing very large quantities of tea, but it was all based on, on, on essentially, it was, it was based on... And the credit is coming from the Bank of England? Uh, no, credit was coming potentially from the East India Company, and it was going to merchants, uh, Chinese see, merchants right, in, 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 in Canton. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. yeah, it wasn't coming from the Bank of England. The right. Bank of England kind of acted as the, as the banker to the East India Company. Right. But the Bank of England wasn't at all happy with what the East India Company was doing. Mm. Uh, it was simply that the Bank of England kind of got drawn into the situation being overexposed yeah. to the East India Company. Mm-hmm. So that, that fateful scheme to uh, unload this stuff in, in America and at the same time uh, solve some of these taxation problems. Well, there were, there were really four different things Lord North was trying to do with the tea scheme. Yeah. First of all, he was trying to help the East India Company out of its, out of its, out of its mm-hmm. financial problem mm-hmm. by helping them to offload all this tea in, in America and generate some cash. That, mm-hmm. was, that was point one. But actually, that wasn't the principal means he was using to help the East India Company. The principal, uh, his principal um, um, tool, if you like, was the fact that the government actually lent, that they gave the East India Company a line of credit. They gave the East India Company a one point four million pound loan. Mm-hmm. So that was that was the principal means that he used to to, to help the company. Um, second thing he was trying to do was that he was definitely trying to put smugglers out of business in North America. I mean, he definitely was trying to flood the North American market with relatively cheap tea so that the smugglers would be forced to out, the, out of business. Mm. So that was definitely part of the intention. Um, and he was trying to generate some, some tax revenues uh, in America because of the threepence mm. Townsend duty on each pound of tea imported into the colonies. And he was going to use that to, um, to pay the salaries of judges and colonial yeah. governors and so forth, which is an issue that's been kicking around for a very long time. But actually, I think the biggest single thing he was trying to do was, was number four, really, which was he was just trying to establish the principle yeah. If he could compel Americans to take the the, the duty paid tea, yeah. even with just this modest threepenny duty on them, then he was making the point of principle. And it was mm. very important that he should do that because it was very important in British fiscal and financial terms that everybody contributed in some way or other to mm-hmm. the needs of the realm. I mean, yeah. the tax net had to be cast as wide as possible. And he couldn't tolerate Americans being in a situation where they paid nothing at all. Why were Americans broadly... I think broadly, beginning to th- think the empire didn't do them any good. Well, I think if you go through the various, if you go through point by point, the kind of goals the empire was intended to fulfil from an American point of view, then point by point, it wasn't actually doing the job. Yeah. You see, the American public who read newspapers could see from reading their own newspapers, which repeated what was in the London newspapers in 1772 mm-hmm. to three, that, for example, there had been a banking crisis. Yeah. They could see that. It was easy to reach the conclusion, or to jump to the conclusion, that this was kind of terminal, mm-hmm. that Britain was a kind of terminally decadent power. Yeah. It was easy yeah. to see that. Um, also, of course, it wasn't entirely clear that Britain was, was from an international perspective, that Britain was actually um, uh, in as strong positions as it had been. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were increasing mm-hmm. threats from France, Russia, and so on and so forth. So mm-hmm. I think the gazing across the Atlantic... The dividing of Poland becomes... Yeah, exactly. Bit, yeah. So gazing across the Atlantic from America, it didn't look as though Britain was quite a necessarily quite the kind of um, secure the, defender of American liberties that it had the been thing, in right. 20 yeah. years ago. Yeah. I think also the British had shown that they weren't really very good at dealing with those kinds of problems that arose in the colonies where they might have been, might have been quite helpful. I mean, Americans did need occasionally a bit of help from, from London mm. in terms, for example, mm. sorting out in, intercolonial disputes. Mm. Uh, and also, of course, what they wanted from, from London was some assistance against... It, it, on the frontier. Yeah. But the British really hadn't got any kind of coherent policy for the frontier except to say they didn't really want to see any frontier expansion. Mm. Um, and I think finally, of course, the, 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 um, from the point of view of political philosophy, uh, the British had really shown no sign of wanting to come up with any kind of new ideas or whatever yeah. about yeah. how the colonies might be run. Right. And there were ominous rumours that used to circulate the fact the British were thinking of revoking some of the colonial charters. Yeah. Now, there were one or two men in the British government who certainly did want to revoke certain of the colonial charters. Mm. They certainly Rhode Island they were thinking of revoking, yeah, yeah. and possibly Massachusetts. Now that wasn't the, the, the orthodox, and it wasn't the official policy of the British government, but it certainly was an idea that was being mooted in some quarters, and, and yeah. 
people like Samuel Adams were well aware that that's what the British were talking about. Well, and in a moment of crisis, that that perspective wins yeah. out with Massachusetts. Yeah, yes, it know, did. Yes, so. and I mean the, the revocation of the, the effectively the, the 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 revocation of the Charter of yeah. Massachusetts in, in 1774-1735 um, was something that the British government would not have done except in extremists. Yeah. I mean they had ruled that out several years earlier. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, you know, after the Tea Party, it was more or less something that was kind of inevitable. Yeah, but it's interesting because it, it is a reference back to sort of an argument that was going on in the 1760s. Yes, about it is. Yeah. What's the matter with Massachusetts? It's too popular. We need to get rid of yeah. this. You know, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, it was the worst possible thing you could have done. What didn't the American resistors understand about Britain? That they were, that well, they, they, that they, they kind of assumed that they were just wrong about it? Well, I think they well a number of things. I think first of all, I mean, they assumed that Britain was some kind of decadent country that right. was, was declining yeah. and that was yeah. doomed, and that clearly wasn't true at all. I mean, yeah. one of the most striking examples of that is the fact that Franklin and one or two of his, of his, of his friends and colleagues seriously believed the British population was actually declining, mm. Mm. Uh, which was completely the reverse of what was actually occurring. Mm. But that was kind of a, a sort of symbolic issue, but it's yeah. an important one. I think also the, 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 the they had bought into the kind of the Wilkesite argument that somehow or other the British government was. Um, run by a corrupt clique or a corrupt um, uh, group of men who were, if yeah. you like, conspiring against the liberties of the, of the, yeah. of the British subject mm -hmm. and against the Marys. There was really no truth in this at all. There was no such conspiracy. There's those two sides obsessed with conspiracy. Yeah, there, there was no such conspiracy at all. Too um, much of a theatre-loving public. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. On both sides. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, that's right. And uh, well, we talked a lot about already, sort of with the... Some mis some kind of misperceptions of the British Ministry or an unwillingness to be flexible. Do you believe this is a counterfactual? Right, if you went with some sort of a Dominion model for rethinking the empire, that uh, that they could have held on to the the colonies in the 18th century. Well, I mean, this is an argument that that was a very important argument. Um, yeah. What you're saying is. If they yeah. had adopted in the 1770s the kind of solution that later they adopted for Australia and Canada, yeah, right, the Canada self-governing yeah. dominion, dominion status, mm -hmm. could they have held on to America? I mean, I think the answer is yes, in a sense, mm -hmm. yes. Mm -hmm. But the difficulty, I think, is is firstly, of course, it wasn't proposed before the revolution <laughs> began, so they, you know, yeah. they couldn't really put the genie back in the bottle. Yeah. I think also the problem would have been the problem of of of, of of finding the individuals that you would need in yeah. order to that lack of an administrative state, yeah, the exactly. lack of that. Exactly. I mean, what you really needed, if you wanted to make America work as a system within the British Empire in the eighteenth century, you needed to have extremely good colonial governors, mm -hmm. and you also needed to have sympathetic elites in each of the individual colonies mm -hmm. who were prepared to cooperate with the governors. Right. Right. Now, in fact, of course, what you see time and time again in the history of the colonies in, in the 40, 50 or so years before the revolution is that the governors were often rather incompetent or mm -hmm. they were idle mm -hmm. or they were well-meaning yeah. incompetent they simply, <laughs> but they simply couldn't they couldn't yeah. build a working relationship with the elites in their colonies yeah. or they tended to misread the political situation um, I mean a good example I think of this is what happened in New York um, we, we had Governor Clinton in the 1740s and 50s who you know certainly wasn't seeking to subvert or destroy colonial liberties uh, who was quite a well-meaning character mm. But he, but he ran into all sorts of problems because he appears to have backed the wrong faction. You know, he yeah. changed sides. He, he had very little he patronage he, of his own. Yeah, he didn't really understand the people he was dealing with. I mean, first of all, he was a great friend of the Delances, and then he, yeah. the, he and the Delances fell out. Then he became a great friend of Cadwallader Colden, one of my kind of favorite history, characters in American colonial yeah. history. Yeah. And Cadwallader Colden had fallen out with the Delances, and so by allying himself with Colden, Clinton basically alienated you know, most of the popular party. Yeah. And it was all a complete shambles, really. Yeah. Um, and time and again this happened. Now in order for, for a dominion status would have worked, you would have needed to have a, a governor general sent from the UK who, who, was, who could have commanded loyalty and yeah. support in the colonies. Yeah. And he would have been, indeed, been a pretty exceptional character. And yeah. I don't know quite where you would have found such a person. Yeah. And as I say, you would have had to have sympathetic elites in each of the individual colonies who were prepared to work yeah. with him. And I'm not quite sure who those people would have been. Well, I think you grasped the problem extremely well. Let me ask you about this. You, you make a couple analogies to either contemporary events or events in our lives, lifetimes that you compare the situation to. One is uh, with the ending of communism in Germany. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a book by Charles Mayer, who is the... Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, called Dissolution, yeah. uh, about the ending, which I always, I always also struck me yeah. as, a, as a somewhat parallel to the sort of the dissolution of authority and, yeah. and, and inability to get things done in the British state. 
How do you how do you think of the American Revolution in terms of other imperial um, challenges, whether the British imperial world of the twentieth century or other empires? Do you do you do you make any of those in your own thinking? Uh, not not really. I mean yeah. the um, the I have a bit of a family connection with this in the sense that my father was one of the last British soldiers to leave India in nineteen forty seven. He was mm. in the parachute regiment in India, and so he was kind of an eyewitness of the collapse of British power in India. Uh, and I used to talk to him about it before he passed away. And uh, but what he used to tell me was, he used to say, "Well, look, you know, honestly, by about 46, 47, the most we could do, frankly, was to to defend the European population and mm. to mm. keep out of lane clothes. Basically, yeah. there was no way we could stop the political process. There was simply no way. There simply weren't enough of us. Mm. It just wasn't practical. And we knew the thing was falling apart. And also, there wasn't the willpower either, yeah. uh, because." Obviously, there was a Labour government in Britain in 1945, and yeah. so everyone knew independence was coming. Yeah. Um, yeah. Many people thought it was a generation late by that point already. Yeah, right? yeah. And, you know, the, the, the dismantling of the British Empire during the 1940s and 1950s was really a very different kind very of different, phenomenon. Yeah. I mm -hmm. mean, uh, it was also a lot more violent than people would mm -hmm. generally remember now. But I don't think it's really very much, much of, a, of a comparison. So, really. so what about other revolutions then, in terms of the, either the 18th century or other revolutionary movements? Do you see the American, how do you, how do you relate it to you know, uh, Latin American revolutions, maybe the French Revolution, uh, or, or the English Civil War? I mean, what, are, are there other well, I think comparative I, revolutions? I think, I think, well, I think the, the closest parallels, yeah. I mean, in the book I talk about the, the collapse of communism, that's yeah. part because I actually you know, I did in the late eighties and early nineties. Yeah. I mean, I was sort of an eyewitness to some extent of the events, and I mean, yeah. you know, I, I was in in Berlin shortly after. Well, the, that's the dissolution of an empire. That's right. I mean, it is. Yeah, but the yeah. one that, the, 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 the parallel that is always much more useful really is Ireland, really. Yeah, and that's that's yeah. the much the closest parallel where you're dealing mm. with the same kind of issues, and of course, if you now as it happens, uh, you know, on, on Easter Monday we'll be celebrating, or if you're Irish, the hundredth anniversary of the Easter of the, of the Easter rising, rising in Dublin. Yeah. And of course, what happened there is similar. You see, yeah. prior to 1916, the British had actually done a pretty good job of, of if you like, um, heading off Irish nationalism. I mean, yeah. in, in, during the period sort of about 1890 to about 1910, 1912, they had uh, pursued a policy of what was called killing home rule with kindness. In mm. other words, mm. they gave the Irish all sorts of, of, mm. of benefits, yeah. subsidies of one kind or another, yeah. kind of economic privileges. They reached the out to the Roman Catholic Church. Right the, the British government, with a Tory or Liberal, did go quite a long way down the road of, of, of heading off and 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 um, uh, preventing Irish national sentiment from ever sort of reaching a kind of um, a, a dangerous kind of point of momentum. But of course, the Easter Rising, rather the British response to the Easter Rising, the execution of the of the of the rebels uh, at Kilmainham Jail, you know, meant that 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 that, that strategy was was completely destroyed. Yeah. And you know that began the process of the of, that led to Irish independence, and I think that would be the comparison you would use really here yeah. with what was going on in, in, in America. Yeah, and you see, the British could have done a lot more to, if you like, kill American libertarianism by kindness. Right. Simply right. by there, there are various things they could have done. You know, really, some of them would a little have been more just flexible, gestures. giving in. Just yeah. a little bit of being flexible, just a little bit of, of courtesy, basically, and mm. you know, mm. a little bit of, of, of diplomatic <laughs> finesse. I mean. Yeah. I think the greatest example is George Washington. Now, I mean, yeah. briefly in the fifties, in the seventeen fifties, of course, Washington had become a bit of a household name in Britain mm -hmm. because of his his, his mm -hmm. heroic exploits during the French and Indian War. But I, you know, you, I'm not sure any British official in the seventeen seventies would actually remember who George Washington was. Mm -hmm. I mean, I certainly Certainly's never right. came across a reference to George Washington in the British newspaper in the seventeen yeah. seventies. Now we know that General Gage, the the British military commander, yeah. did meet. Washington, I forget whether it was once or twice for dinner. Um, but clearly, you can see how if Gage had reached out to well, Washington. Well, Gage knew him during Braddock's yeah, campaign. Exactly. But then later yeah. on, oh, okay, right. Yeah, they wrote. But you see, I'm not sure reading Gage's correspondence whether Gage actually ever came to Virginia. Yeah. I don't think he did. Yeah. I mean, he'd obviously been, he'd been in the West and he'd been in Virginia in the 50s. I don't think so. But in the late 60s and 70s, I don't think he did. I think a really basic uh, diplomatic finesse and diplomatic. Mm. Uh, and diplomatic uh, Bit of generosity on a human level yeah. would, would have <laughs> might have been able to make quite a difference. And there were things they could have done. I mean, I think obviously the British, if the British had tried a divide and rule strategy of, of like giving commercial concessions, for example, to to the tobacco planters in Virginia and so on, mm -hmm. uh, I think that's a way by which they could have could have could have headed off some of the um, of the animosity. But the fact is, they didn't. Where did um, the Scots fit in? A lot of the Americans blame yeah, the Scots. 
I know. Well, of course, I mean, the Scots did encounter. Well, the Virginians, of course, loathed them because of the, the tobacco. Because of the Glasgow, yeah, yeah, because the, the system, the Glasgow tobacco yeah. merchants. And of course, in the revolution itself, a lot of Scots were Tories or loyalists, essentially. Yeah. But, so, do they they factor into your story at all as an economic interest, as a political interest? Well, they certainly keep popping up all over the place. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the Scots keep turning up. I mean, I mean, the, the classic. They seem rigid in their political. Well, I, don't, I think the other point was simply this: that the, the Scotland was a relatively poor backward country. I mean, okay, the Scottish improving movement had begun. Mm -hmm. Scottish agriculture was starting to, to, to catch up with British agriculture and Scotland was mm -hmm. starting to industrialise, but it was coming from a very low base. Mm -hmm. I mean, the really big kind of industrialisation of in, in, uh, Scotland didn't come until, you know, many years later. Yeah. So Scotland was still going back to place and there were a lot of members of the landed gentry in Scotland who really had no realistic prospect of, of a comfortable lifestyle. And of course, they, they sought jobs in the colonial service. Mm -hmm. I mean. A great example of this in the book is Duddingston, the, the Lieutenant Duddingston, who was the commander of the gas bay, the, the Royal mm -hmm. Navy schooner that was destroyed in Rhode Island in 1772. Mm -hmm. Duddingston was a classic example of a, of, a, of, a, of a man from a minor landowning family on the coast of Scotland in Fife. The family were, were in debt, he was in debt. Uh, Fife, the Fife-sheer gentry were notorious for being a bit feckless and, you know, and, and, and being indebted. And so he really had no alternative but to, to try and get himself a position in the Royal Navy on active service. Mm -hmm. And it was ideal for him to be in, in colonial waters chasing after smugglers because right. he had the opportunity to, to supplement his official salary by yeah. seizing vessels and, and yeah. getting, a, a, getting a bounty from the government. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that was kind of inevitable. That was a good example. But he wasn't the only one. I mean, there were lots of examples of these Scotsmen basically coming from backgrounds where they were in need of, 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 of an income. Mm. And the colonial, colonial service seemed to be the place where they could go to get it. Mm. And unfortunately, if it's what America's got in the way, well, you know, tough. Mm. Well, this is a fascinating conversation. We're exceeding our time yeah. already, but I, I will say, um, and we've talked a lot about the bigger structures of the empire and that. And uh, it in, in fact, it's a great ripping narrative of, uh, of yes. what happens yeah. between those years and the kind of, um, it's not inevitable, but the gradual. Uh, a coming of the revolution as it emerges uh, from the pages. It's really brilliantly done. And one last question. You mentioned that you like Joseph Conrad, the writer. Uh, there's aspects, uh, perhaps, I would submit, of the British Empire in North America that, that feel a little like Heart of Darkness. Or, you know, you think, it's, <laughs> yeah. you, know, you think of um, Johnson out there, Johnson Hall, well, and he's sort of yeah, you know, this this right, yeah. you know this strange liminal yeah, status. Right, yeah. so did, you, did you feel like any? Well, and your and your your collapsing Ford into the Mississippi. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So I mean, it, it's not so much uh, Heart of Darkness that I have in mind. Actually, yeah. it's not my favorite among his books. Yeah. Um, the novel of Conrad's that I regret is the greatest, and the one which I tend to get to go back to again and again is Nostromo, which is the sure. the novel yeah. about the the South American Republic. Yeah. Because of course, what Conrad was doing there, he was painting a portrait of, of late nineteenth century capitalism um, in a particularly predatory and expansionist phase, mm. where all these people were going about South America, you know, obtaining mining concessions mm -hmm. and, and effectively taking over control of small countries. And I think that was one which I think that has more echoes with the situation of, of the East India Company, for example. Interesting. And also yeah. Conrad's um, Conrad's pro style in Nostromo and his his. His ability to set a scene is, is particularly um, is particularly remarkable. Mm. Well, thank you so much for the book, and, and thank you for the conversation here. <laughs> right. We look forward to Benjamin Franklin. When can yeah. when can we look for that coming uh, out? Well, I, I deliver the manuscript at the end of this year, and when it actually comes out, I really don't know. Okay, so 2017. Something like that. Yeah. Well, All right. Fingers crossed. Well, yeah. thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. Please visit mountvernon.org forward slash library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you and we'll see you next week.